my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I actually kept a notebook of what I would not do when I got to be the boss. When you gave me the opportunity, you kind of looked at me and said, I don't know what you can do, but let's see. Oh my God, nothing could be better than that. Just a straight on challenge. We needed to be a rebellion. We were taking back Nickelodeon for kids. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing, where we explore the combination of analytics and creativity, math and magic that's at the heart of so many marketing and business successes. Today we have someone who led the birth of and transformed a number of major TV networks. She was also one of the first women to break through the men barrier in the entertainment media business, Jerry Laybourne. Her 
her mom was a creative. Her dad was in business. She clearly inherited both skills. She started out on a track in architecture, moved to education, then advocacy for responsible TV for kids, produced kids' TV program, and then joined Nickelodeon at its birth to do the pro-social kids' TV when it was a non-commercial service for preschoolers. Later, as the head of the network, she transformed it to the first tweens TV network, added advertising, and changed American culture. She went on to Disney, starting new networks, and finally started her own network, Oxygen. She's been on corporate boards, served as a mentor to countless women and executives. She lived through Sumner Redstone's takeover Viacom, Michael Ovitz's short tenure at Disney, and partnered with Oprah. And her well-known smile never left her face, ever. Jerry, welcome. Bob, it's so great to be here. You and I are old friends. So I know some stories even our best researchers can't find. But before we get into that, I want to do you in 60 seconds. Are you ready? Yep. Do you prefer Rugrats or Doug? Doug. A silver bouncing ball or a green slime? Green slime. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Philly or New York? New York. Cup or cone? Cone. The Dick Van Dyke Show or Get Smart? Dick Van Dyke. Texting or calling? Calling. L.A. or Telluride? L.A. Dennis the Menace or Mr. Ed? (laughs) Mr. Ed. Of course. Cable TV or the Internet? Oh, boy, that's a killer. Internet. Nickelodeon or Disney Channel? Nickelodeon. Okay, it's about to get harder. What's your favorite city? Montreal. Secret talent? I can tie cherry stems in my mouth. I can (laughs) tie a knot. Well, I'll take your word for it. I can beat anybody at it, except my daughter. (laughs) Greatest motivator? You. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. Smartest person you know? Danny Hillis. Childhood hero? Pat Moon. Favorite novel? Plain Song by Kent Haruf. Who would play you in a movie? Lauren McCall. What would the title be of your memoir? Raised by Kids. Proudest professional achievement? The Global Mentors Walk. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, I wanted to be a doctor. And then I discovered that I have a condition that makes me faint if anybody tells me about an illness. And that kind of took that away. Okay, I promise we won't talk about any illnesses today. Thank you. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? World peace. Well, that's a good one. Okay, let's jump back in time to us as young managers at what was then called Warner MX Satellite Entertainment Corporation. Then in our day was MTV Networks, and now it's Viacom. I had just moved up from the programming and marketing guy who led the product at MTV to be chief operating officer of the company and turn my attention to Nickelodeon, a commercial-free, preschoolers TV network where you were the key programmer. This was the mid-'80s. We were just launching targeted, or as we called it, the narrowcast TV networks, and you had a better idea for Nickelodeon. You wanted to go for tweens, older kids, preteens, and young teens. And by the way, one of my best executive decisions ever was to listen to you and invest in you and support that. Can you tell us about that vision and where it came from? Well, it came from being a teacher and a researcher with kids. I love kids. I'm a natural kid advocate. And I thought that television routinely looked down at kids and condescended to them and gave them subpar creators. And I felt like if you listened to kids and you treated them as if they were really smart, you could do some pretty interesting stuff. If you remember, we had no money. So I remember that. We couldn't do what anybody else did. But I would research everything that people said about kids' TV. 
like program only to boys, girls will watch anything, kids will only watch animation. I'm such a contrarian. It's like, okay, if everybody else is going that direction, we're going to go this direction. So it was very much like MTV because MTV was a contrarian network. Most of your shows were Canadian. They were cheap, but they were breakthrough. At one point, we had more Canadian content on Nickelodeon than any network in Canada except Windsor, Ontario. (laughs) Nickelodeon, you think of orange and green slime. Where did that green slime come from? It came out of You Can't Do That on Television, which truly was, I think, the most important show ever produced for kids because it took kids' side and it used reverse psychology. It made kids feel better after watching it. But the premise of it was we had everyday kids, and it was shot in Ottawa, and so these were everyday Canadian kids. And the producer, Roger Price, wrote the show based on the personalities of the kids. So he wasn't making them be anything they weren't. He was just multiplying it. And they started to get kind of uppity and kind of like Hollywood kids. So he decided that he would start sliming them. It was triggered by them saying, I don't know, which he would write in the script for whoever needed to be put in their place. It ended up backfiring on them because they loved being slimed. Have you ever been slimed? I was never slimed. I think I avoided the sliming. I got slimed in the office one day. It is wonderful. Well, I'm going to take your word for that because I'm not dying to be slimed. So if anybody's listening, It would look so good on you. Yeah, don't slime me. So- You were talking about MTV being contrarian. We had just introduced the idea of a network identity as opposed to a network delivering programs with the viewer's affinity attached to just the program. And we decided that Nickelodeon could do the same thing. How did you define that? And how did you make the big move from a somewhat corny silver bouncing ball for preschoolers, Nickelodeon, to the cool new Nick you created? Well, First of all, I just have to say we never turned our back on preschoolers. We had the best preschool programming ever, but we had to be very careful to put it in its own bucket. So we called it Nick Jr. Our target was 10 and tween. So that was a key thing because we were known for being a baby channel. I think you know the story of my son throwing his Nickelodeon hat in the closet when he was five, sobbing. And I said, what's the matter? And he said... They say Nickelodeon's a baby channel. Honestly, my inspiration for Nickelodeon was Sam. He was the coolest little five-year-old you ever saw, and we just grew up with him. But I'd also say that I was a student of what you were doing. I saw how right it was that if you focus on the audience and delight them and let the creative community do their best work without manhandling or woman-handling them— that you're going to get a really interesting result. That's what we did. We created, just like you did, a list of promises that we were the first network for kids. We were completely on their side. We were going to bring them the best creative we possibly could. Fred Seibert, who had done the original on-air look for MTV, and by the way, who's been on Math and Magic, when he was on, talked some about helping in that original creation of Owning Orange. I remember when you guys presented it to me, my reaction was, orange? That's it? From your vantage point, how did you get from that bouncing ball to this very cool image and attitude in that graphic look? Well, the bouncing ball was created by an outside agency 
that the guy before me had hired. It was very secretive. Nobody was a part of it. They had no relationship to kids. And they just thought, okay, kids like this kind of stuff. No kid can attach themselves to a silver ball. It just isn't possible. And so Fred was incredibly collaborative, direct, honest. He would say, Outspoken. you're wrong and I'm going to tell you why. And I didn't get upset by that. It was like, okay, tell me why. We learned together. I think Fred feels like he was my partner, which he was. We had a collaborative process. We had a wonderful guy named Tom Corey and Tom Pompasello, who were true geniuses. We got delighted by anything. So creative agencies wanted to work with us because we would say, give us 10 ideas and we'll pick three. And we won't tell you how to change them. We just set rules. Same way MTV. You were a container. You wanted people to connect with it. One of the things we did when we started taking advertising, we would get buckets of mail. They would be decorated on the outside with kids' own shapes because the idea behind Nickelodeon is it's like a kid's mind, constantly transforming. We knew that if we took an envelope that was decorated on the outside, we could take it into a sales meeting and just let them open the letters. And it worked. It worked, but that was a lesson from MTV. Get identification that kids can make their own. Before we get into the impact of Nickelodeon and your networks after that, let's go further back to your childhood to get some perspective. Your mom had been a writer, actor, and producer of soap operas. Your dad was a stockbroker. Were they true to their stereotypes? Was that a creative and a business person? Absolutely. And what was the impact on you from having that range? There was a third element. My mother was an advocate for kids. So it was really like a trifecta. And also my mother broke every rule, including how to open a milk carton. So we had sloppy milk my entire childhood. She didn't like to go the same way twice. I was the middle daughter. My older sister was beautiful and perfect. My younger sister was brilliant and charismatic. And there's me, 18 months apart, squeezed in. And my dad, when I was five, said, you're going to be my business daughter. And he made me treasurer of the family. I took out bank accounts for my irresponsible siblings. I went to business meetings with my dad when I was eight, nine, ten. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So you grew up in New Jersey. This was the 50s and 60s. Paint the picture of those times. What well, was the Sputnik era? Schools were very science-focused. I went to public school. I had 13 hours of biology as a freshman. I got the lowest grade in my class, 7, 16, on my college boards. One year, we had half session. I organized our clubhouse for the other half day. I made people do debates and plays and I was so nerdy, I rode away to every foreign embassy, and my hobby was alphabetizing. You know, God, That is nerdy. I, Wonderfully nerdy. You know, it's terrible. <laughs> People don't realize in those days, we didn't have the internet. There was no. no kids' TV programming on TV. I rode away to observatories and asked them for pictures of planets with letters and stamps, and yeah. got a surprising number back. Yeah. Did you pay much attention to TV in your youth? I did. There wasn't that much that was really oriented to kids. There were some local shows like the Herb Reiner show. I loved Hopalong Cassidy. 
when TV was installed, they had actually a guy who came in, plugged in our TV, turned it on, and my mother said, well, hello, television. And the television said right back to her, hello out there in television land. So as a three-year-old, I thought TV could see me. I would take a bath, get dressed up, and sit in front of the television so Hoppy could see me. In your high school era, were you a 60s radical or a mainstream suburban kid? I would say I was a suburban kid. I didn't get radicalized till later. You've been a long time and major supporter of Vassar. Why did you go to Vassar? Well, my sister was there. I was deciding between Cornell and Vassar. And ironically, I'd always had really great relationships with boys in high school and not that many close relationships with girls. And I thought that if I was going to be a good, effective human, I better learn how to have female friends. The other thing about Vassar that was appealing to me is Vassar is a contrarian place. Every student there is taught to question everything and go to the source and not to take other people's interpretations of things. And that was sort of made for me. What did you get out of that experience looking back all these years later? Well, they actually taught me how to run things. I'm not sure that I was the best student in the world, but I really was dedicated to helping the administration and also the student body. They put me on the master planning committee that was studying how to turn Vassar from a female college to a co-ed college. And I got to run committee meetings and have architects. And, you know, it was just, they took us seriously. What was the big issue that Vassar was facing in moving from all women to co-ed? Well, at the time, the men's schools were jealous of Harvard because Harvard had Radcliffe right next door. So they felt to be competitive with Harvard, they have to have their own girls. It was really like Yale wanted to date us and marry us and bury us. That's too harsh. but Go ahead, be harsh. They just wanted to be competitive in attracting the best and the brightest. So that was going on at Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, everywhere, Wesleyan, Williams. And for us to be successful, we had to go co-educational. It's a very special place, and it's always been about access. First, it was access to women. Then it was access to men who wanted an equal co-education. Now it's access to diverse economic populations. So you graduated. You worked briefly at an architectural firm and then as a school teacher. You got your master's from the University of Pennsylvania, Penn, and then you co-founded the Media Center for Children in 1974. What was that about? It was about looking at kids and watching them look at very avant-garde film. We tried all kinds of crazy National Film Board of Canada short films, and we got into the independent creative community in that way. So Eli Noyes and Drew Takahashi... We were just trying to see what is true about what kids would be interested in tolerate. We also worked with schools and libraries to get kids to be interactive with media. So it was really like the perfect background. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. 
Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Jerry Laybourne. You left to join Nickelodeon in 1980. What attracted you to Nickelodeon and that mission? We had a $25,000 grant. Our mission was to market the work of independent filmmakers to television, and Nickelodeon was our first client. And we were the first producers that they ever hired. And we had this crazy show, Video Dream Theater, where we would animate kids into their own dreams using color Xerox or masks. Julie Tamar, who went on to do The Lion King and lots of everything, she was our 
mask maker. It was just a really creative, fabulous thing. By the way, horrible television. Kids dream about abandonment, suffocation, and you know, it's just terrible. But I got hired. You had a boss at Nickelodeon before you were the boss. What did you learn from that boss? Well, he was a very conventional, top-down manager. I don't think we had a single team meeting the whole time he was vice president of Nickelodeon. I was the first president. Thank you. He had low expectations. He sent all of our good creative problems to old crony friends outside, and he didn't encourage us to work together. I actually kept a notebook of what I would not do when I got to be the boss. So when you gave me the opportunity, I don't know if you remember this, but you kind of looked at me and said, I don't know what you can do, but let's see. It wasn't like, okay, you're now the executive vice president of Nickelodeon. It was just, I know enough not to get rid of you. Let's see what you can do. Oh, my God, nothing could be better than that. Just a straight-on challenge. I took the 20 people that were working for Nickelodeon off to a conference room, and we put all the things we knew about Nickelodeon. Here's what's not working. Here's what's working. And at the end of the day... I knew which people were going to be on the team and which were not. I fired seven people. We needed to be a rebellion. We were taking back Nickelodeon for kids. After the switch to ad support in 1984 and the relaunch of Nickelodeon as the tween channel, you really struck gold. Can you talk a little bit about, one, what that felt like, and two, why you think Nickelodeon caught on like that? Well, first of all, it helps to be the first, to have really no competition, and to be true to your audience. We literally did not put anything on the air that hadn't been tested with kids. And we were adventuresome. We had some big flops. I remember promising you the moon with Turkey TV. It was going to be comedy clips like MTV for kids. And the day it arrived on Memorial Day weekend, 1985, it was even worse than Video Dream Theater. My son, who at this point was 10, just started to sob. This is horrible. You will never work in TV again. I called everybody back to the office, and we spent six days re-editing everything. You know, you let me off the hook on that. Well, one thing we all know is you don't come close to getting it right 100% of the no, time. No, in so fact, it's, it's the big flops that... you got to take the chances. You know, we worked for a guy named Steve Ross who ran Warner Communications and then Time Warner. And Steve used to say, you know, Bob, around here you'll never be fired for making a mistake you'll be fired for not making a mistake. Yep. So you're not making mistakes tells me you're not trying anything new. Yep. And that was our lifeblood. But it was just so much fun. And the other thing was, if you were working at Nickelodeon, you really had to like kids. I had this trick question, which I would ask any employee, probably illegal. What were you like as a kid? And they tell you everything, how they get along with their siblings, how they're going to work in a team and what they care about. Let's talk a minute about how it was to be a woman in this very big job, in this very highly visible environment. Well, I had this boss, Bob Pittman. The first day that I was invited into the executive suite, there were only four of us, Tom Preston, you, 
Bob Briganti and me. I made my husband quiz me for four hours about sports metaphors. It was terrifying to me. And I come in, and the first sports metaphor that I could possibly come up with, I came up with. And of course, I used tennis metaphor in a basketball court. And you looked at me and said, you can skip that. We have you here for what you know, and I don't care about sports. We want you to be you. You have no idea how incredibly empowering that was. And if men would do that, they would get such better results. But it wasn't that hard for me. You wanted me to be the nerdy, caring, creative, loving head. And you encouraged me to make mistakes and you didn't hold grudges. Let's talk about you as a school teacher. We talked back then about how that helped you as both a programmer and as an executive. And by the way, was it a big influence on your management style? Talk a little bit about that. So I went to Penn during the days of open classrooms, which was a very short-lived American experiment. Open classroom, if it's done well, and it was done well in England, is the greatest kind of education for a kid because it's oriented towards individualized instruction. So your job as a teacher is to find out what's great about you, lift that up. It's not remediation-oriented. So that had huge impact on my management style. Just to illustrate the success you had there, one of my favorite stories, and I tell it often about you, is we tried to buy the company in a management buyout, MTV Networks, which included Nickelodeon and MTV. And we so failed. So sad. It was sad. And Viacom bought us, and this was pre-Sumner Redstone Viacom. They got us to do this sort of rigorous five-year plan each year. And I remember the last one I did, five years later, I'm in my office, I get an envelope, open up the envelope. It's a Xeroxed copy of the fifth year of the Nick budget page. And it was a handwritten note from you on it that said, what you didn't believe. That was it. Of course, the point was you had crushed the five-year number. I still remember walking out of the office with my tail between my legs, being beaten up about how could I put that dream down there. It was on fire. You and Tom Preston, actually, were the reasons Sumner Redstone and Tom Dooley bought Viacom. I was instrumental in setting up a meeting with you and Tom for Sumner. And you had a golden career there. You became vice chair of MTV Networks as well. You couldn't have been bigger, more important, and more successful. And then you left to go to Disney in 1995 to take over their cable networks and even fix up the Disney Channel, which had been your big competition, or at least they tried to be. Why did you leave? Well, I, I could see some bad times ahead. I loved Nickelodeon. Leaving was probably the hardest thing. I felt like it was, am I going to be anybody tomorrow when I'm not, I don't have Nickelodeon? And by the way, I think you and I shared that. I had that fear of MTV. You had the fear of Nickelodeon. It was so much us. We loved the people we worked with. It was just the greatest, really. But the structure of Viacom and MTV networks, by this point, Nickelodeon was making more money than MTV. And there was lots of messy stuff around VH1. And I just felt like it was going to be hard for Nickelodeon to really do what I wanted it to do. 
the mission of Nickelodeon was to connect with kids and connect kids with their world through entertainment. Now, if there isn't a better internet mission statement, we wrote that in 1984. I look back, if Height stayed, would we have been successful in doing that? But I like to grow, I like to try things, and I felt like I was starting to get resistance. The Viacom management could not understand why I wanted to have a different kind of participation. I wanted to be participating in the growth of Nickelodeon, because when we started, Nickelodeon was worth less than nothing. And when I left, it was between 8 and $10 billion, which is more than Viacom is today. And so it's a serious business concern. So you go to Disney, you sign a four-year contract, you really do improve the product there, you bring in some great people, you really revamp it, and then you left. You left two years later to start Oxygen. Well, give me some insights there. I had been courted by Iger, Eisner, and Ovitz in their separate buckets. So when they all came together, who do we want to get? Jerry Laybourne. I'd only had really one big job, and it felt pretty good to want to be wanted as opposed to the pushback that you get when you're highly successful in a company and their sibling rivalry. And I felt like if I didn't take a chance on myself, I always was comfortable taking a chance for Nickelodeon and my staff, but how about me? I didn't sign a long-term contract that had no outs. I had the right to quit for no reason. I got to Disney. I met a lot of fabulous people. I made lifetime friendships. Danny Hillis, who is the smartest man in the world. We had the Imagineers inventing telefusion and convergence, and it was exciting. But it wasn't my crusader kind of thing. They really wanted me to fix things, and they didn't really want to invest in the things they talked about. So I waited. I got two years' worth of options. I went to Michael Eisner and said, I'm going to start a new company. Do you want to be an investor? And he said yes, and I left. You joined Oprah and others. I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to stop down for just a few minutes here and download some of what you learned from all that, because that's a remarkable span of opportunities, situations. First, talk about brands. What are they? How do you think about what a brand is, and how do you build them? I believe you don't have a brand unless your audience tells you you have a brand. It's a relationship with your audience. When we took over the Disney Channel, I brought Ann Sweeney in and Rich Ross. We looked at what was happening with the Disney Channel. All it was was taking the equity of Disney. There was no equity around the Disney Channel. There was no relationship with the audience. All they wanted to do was a pay channel. All they wanted to do was make sure somebody bought it month after month. In the 7 p.m. slot, one night they'd have an Eisenhower documentary, and the next night they'd have Dumbo. I bet the kids were dying for that Eisenhower. <laughs> that was a big, big moment. So we tried to create an identity for the Disney Channel. We took the old lessons, and we created an identity, and then ate Nickelodeon's lunch. Let's talk about building companies, building teams. What kind of culture do you need? to have a building situation? 
Well, you need different thinkers at the table. You need people who are strategic. You need people who are creative. You need people who are tactical. And you need to make sure that they feel comfortable giving voice to their point of view and that, in fact, the team depends on them. Debbie B.C. was of the Fred Cyber School. You're wrong, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> That's the best thing for a dreamer like me to have. You couldn't have a better relationship. We all had this philosophy that our responsibility was to make sure everybody at the table was getting an A. We had a program called the PIT program, Presidents in Training. So everybody at my executive team were presidents in training. And I promised them, if you come in here and look at our problems from up here, we will all learn to be presidents together. And you won't all be president of Nickelodeon, but you'll get to be president of something. And many of them did. They did. Let me get some personal insights here. One of your key relationships has been, probably for, I think, all of your adult life, has been your partnership with your husband, Kit. Wildly creative, funny. You both worked sometimes together, certainly in related fields. How did you actually work like that and never get at each other's throats? We did get at each other's throats because... Okay, none of us saw it. You know, no. But it was around taxes or something like that. He wanted to do it thoroughly, and I had an attitude that, it was worth four hours a year to do our taxes and not endlessly crossing T's and dotting I's. So I took over the business aspects of our life, and he really was a creative force. He backed me up on most of the big creative choices, and I knew that I wasn't going to go wrong. We laugh a lot. Even when he worked on shows for Nick or Oxygen, he never worked for me. One of the reasons that we did so well with independent producers was because I slept with one. <laughs> he would keep reminding me how to not be a bad executive. Your two kids are in the business. Is that a surprise? Honestly, growing up in our house where every dinner conversation was about what should we name this show or does this work... We had a big house in Montclair, and in the early years, you know, we had no budgets. Most of Turkey TV was shot at our house in Montclair. So my kids had to do things like throw frogs out of the window, and Sam would catch them. You know, it just was too much fun. How could you be a banker after that? that? So let's go back to Oxygen. You talked about Nickelodeon and how you fit into the Viacom world. You talked about Disney and these big names and big executives there. And you go to Oxygen. Although it's your network, your partners were all world-class creators. All had vision. All had worked hard. How did you harness that? Well, it probably was the hardest thing I ever did. But there was a lot of goodwill towards Oxygen. The first partner we had was Marcy Carsey and Carsey Werner. Marcy is just about the most fantastic creative person you can ever be a partner with. One day we thought, how could we make this better? Is there anybody who could bring us marketing magic? And we said, Oprah, we both knew her. We called her up. We flew out. We had lunch. Oprah had me fly back and lie on a couch with her for seven hours talking about my past she asked me the same questions you're asking me now. 
And she decided she was going to come in with us. She'd always wanted to have a cable network. But she had a staff that was very protective of her. So we didn't always get as much as we wanted. Everybody wants everything from Oprah. She's truly a miraculous person. So you sold Oxygen to NBC in 2007. Great timing, right before the Great Recession. I was not in favor of selling Oxygen. You know the world of bankers better than I do, but at first they told us, don't do any TV. It's all about the Internet. Then the bubble happened. The dot-com bust. The dot-com bust. And so we had to trim down the Internet and focus all on TV. We started making that profitable. And my Christmas bonus, the year we got profitable, was that I could go back into the Internet. And so we figured out that women make all these visual decisions all the time. We wanted to recreate that experience of ripping out of a magazine. And we created this whole collage system that was just genius called Ripped.com. And it was the precursor to Pinterest. So when we sold Oxygen, not on my brilliant timing, but on the pressure of our investors, I didn't have the prescience to take Ripped with me. So that's one of your few regrets. Yeah. You've been on the board of a number of companies, including Electronic Arts, Video Game Maker. I took your seat. You took my seat. And you were on JCPenney, the retailer, and a lot in between. What do you add as a board member? Well, I add the relationship piece. And I have a marketing orientation. And I also question why we do something the way we do it. Also, just being a woman with a different way of thinking. Okay, time to get judgy. What do you think of the state of children's TV today? It's very scary to me. I'm thrilled that Brian Robbins has been appointed the head of Nickelodeon because he's a producer. He produced all that for us. He's got a creative core, which I think is what really differentiated us at MTV Networks. We worshipped creative. We were not just trying to trim every cost. We were trying to get the best out of people. Well, as a matter of fact, we often talked about that if the consumers love it, we'll figure out how to make money on it. Right, exactly. But let's don't reverse that order. Right. The thing that concerns me the most right now is that YouTube has become the number one kids brand. And there's absolutely no concern on the part of people who are putting YouTube on the air for kids. What do you think about cell phones, always on media, social, et cetera, and impact on kids? I think it's awful. I often get asked by groups of women, what can we do? And I say, well, the first thing you can do is when you get home, put your phone in your purse and zip it and never take it out in front of your kids. But I have a small tech company that's creating a Minecraft-like game called Chicken, C-H-K-N, that is about getting kids to create creatures out of little blocks that have artificial intelligence. It's very fresh and original, but it's engaging. How do we get kids to be creative and share their creativity? So I think there are things that can be done. I mean, it's a completely turned upside down marketplace. I think podcasting could be great for kids. I would love to get we into that so. business. Well, you're at the right place <laughs> and you're on a podcast. Let's get judgy a little bit about state of the cable networks and TV networks. How do you view it? 
I don't think we ever dreamed that the programmers would have so much clout that they would be able to basically ruin the industry by charging too much. If you talk to cable operators, all their growth comes from broadband and supplying small businesses with high-speed internet. Video is a pain in the neck. Very different from when you and I were there and we worshipped at the feet of the cable operators. Right. What we did for providing choice and a reasonable economics, we were never greedy. We all flourished and then everybody got greedy. It feels to me like this over-the-top stuff is toppling the formula we had. Talk about just a second on sort of state of the internet. You were very early in the internet and you were right when you started Oxygen. TV networks were saying, internet, who needs that? And you were saying, I'm embracing the internet. Did it turn out the way you expected it to? I didn't know what I expected because I knew it was an order of magnitude of something that I had never seen. But I think if I pull out old pitches for old ideas, we might be pretty close to where it went. The downfall of retail, I didn't really see that as happening so fast. So time for some advice. What advice would you give to someone trying to follow in your footsteps that wants to be the next Jerry Layborn? I'd say be serious in learning and fun in working. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self if you could go back and do that? Study how to do a management buyout effectively. (laughs) We end each episode where we begin math and magic with a shout-out to the standouts in the analytical side of marketing and business, the math people, and also those from the creative side, which we call the magicians. Who would be your choice for the mathematician? Danny Hillis. For the magician? I would say Steve Jobs. Jerry, you have bridged that math and magic world very well for your whole career. You've helped so many people along the way. You've spent so much time giving to others, and you still do. You're one of the greats of media. Thanks for being here. What a pleasure. Here are a few things I picked up in my conversation with Jerry. One, to build a successful team like Jerry did at Nickelodeon, you need people with differing talents who aren't afraid to share their unique insights or defend their point of view to the rest of the team. Two, let creatives be creative. If you give people the room to make mistakes, like Jerry did throughout her career, sooner or later, they'll make something terrific. Three, ask your audience's opinion and trust their answers, even if your audience is your own family. When Jerry's young son didn't like a Nickelodeon show, she'd often rework it, sometimes kill it. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.